You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Lacrosse Boots. Now, Lacrosse is at it again with a new line of lace-up hunting boots, the Navigator Series. And in that Navigator Series, there are two models. There's the Atlas for men and the Windrose for both men and women. To find out more information about this new Navigator Series, visit lacrossefootwear.com. This is a Houndsman XP podcast with your host, Steve Fielder, and me, Chris Powell. If you're ready to up your game to extreme performance, sit back, buckle up, and hang on for another exciting episode of Houndsman XP. Welcome to the Houndsman XP podcast. We are closing in on fall temperatures, and I'm really looking forward to that. Steve, are you seeing anything of fall yet in Florida? Uh, the only thing I'm seeing uh, fall is me occasionally down here when I don't lift my foot up high enough to step up on the curb. <laughs> It is hot down here, man. We, uh, I know that, that, uh, you're probably looking toward the end of August. I always thought around, uh, Labor Day, you could just kind of feel that little bit of hint of fall in the air up there in the Midwest. And, uh, but we won't be looking at that down here probably until October. So, but uh, we we dodged a little tropical depression or whatever la- this past week, and I think it's kind of petered out. And uh, although we're in the hurricane season down here, we haven't had any, so yeah, we'll uh, we'll hope that continues. Well, the uh, the two major coonhound events are right around the corner, and people will be converging on central Indiana here very shortly for both Autumn Oaks and the PKC Labor Day Classic. It's amazing how many houndsmen end up in Indiana during the month of September. Oh, yeah. It's the time that we all look forward to. And, uh, you know, September, Labor Day is the first uh, September. Uh, They called that event Autumn Oaks, and I guess that's Russian Autumn a little bit, but they were (laughs) anticipating it. And, I know on those drives back to Michigan from either uh, North Vernon back in the day or uh, from Richmond, uh, when we get back up around the Michigan line, we could definitely feel that little bit of fall in the air, and that's the time we look forward to. Well, they call that autumn oaks because they're into the power of positive thinking, I guess. <laughs> Is that how you named that, Steve? That's- Is that how that event got named, Steve? Well, you know, I don't know how it got named, really. That was back in the days of Ed Furman at UKC, and I think they kicked it off at uh, maybe at Greencastle, and they were in Paducah, Kentucky, and then up in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and then went back to Greencastle and stayed there for 20 years. But uh, 
I don't know who came up with that name. I'm going to guess it was somebody like old Lester Nance probably uh, might have been the one because uh, he was kind of an innovator back in the day. But uh, Yeah, no doubt. Uh, well, what, sure. while we're talking about Autumn Oaks, let's just do a recap on that real quick because that is coming up. I've already talked to some houndsmen from the West, and they're going to make their first trips to Autumn Oaks this year to take in the festivities. And so we're going to have our own booth set up there. We're going to be doing some live podcasts out of the booth. We'll have some of our merchandise on hand. And especially Jason Doobie from uh, W Hunting Supply is going to be on hand with us as well. So look for our banner and make sure you come and stop by and talk to us for a few minutes. And and don't be shy if we grab you and, and ask you to do a podcast with us. That's for sure, uh, Chris. And we're going to be in the vendor barn, the main vendor barn. Uh, I'll be doing double duty at uh, Autumn Oaks. Uh, I'll be in the American Cooner full cry booth. There will be just across the hall from where we normally are there in the booth, the, in the um, vendor barn. And right adjacent to us will be, as you said, the Houndsman XP and uh, w hunting supply booth so uh we're we're really looking forward to it as always it's a reunion you know it's a time of year when people get together and uh, everybody's in anticipation of the coming fall seasons and all and then i'm sure uh as we get into introducing our guest today he'll want to talk about the uh the uh, labor day classic which uh all the pkc boys love to to hunt at uh at the the classic and then come back up and and visit and buy supplies and so forth at autumn oak so it's just a great weekend i'm looking forward to it yeah and you need to make sure that if you are browsing around on the grounds you stop by it's hard telling who you can run into i know uh calvin redhouse is is still trying to work out the logistics on being there so if you follow res hounds on on social media there's a good chance you'll run into him. And then I know that uh, Larry and Jamie Anderson from Dillon, Montana, are flying out. And they'll be in for the weekend. And who knows who, who else you can run into hanging around the Houndsman XP booth or the Cooner booth. Well, that's for sure. Um, you know, that's one thing that uh, I never tire of is standing around that booth and talking to the people that come by. And, uh it's it's just uh, as I said, it's a reunion of coon hunters from all over the country. If you haven't been there, you definitely need to to get on over there to Richmond, Indiana, and down to to uh, Greensburg. Uh, we're going to talk about the guests we have for today. Do Chris. we? Are uh, we going to get into that? Are we? Is that why we're here today? Do, we... do you want? Do you want? You think you and I should just continue to talk throughout this <laughs> podcast and? I know he. This guy's busy. You know he's There's probably no got doubt. something to do. No <laughs> doubt. And this is going to be. A, uh, I'm very happy to have our guest on today. I've known uh, this guy for a long time. Worked with him on several projects. We formed the Hoosier Tree Dog Alliance together and worked hard on that project for a number of years together. And and uh, he's a guy that that is always working hard it doesn't matter whether he's volunteering his time or he's getting paid usually he's not getting paid enough but for what he's doing but it's my pleasure to introduce jerry mall 
of Salt Creek Coon Hounds. And Jerry, what is your title at PKC? You're you're not the owner, but you're you're way up there. Uh, hi, Chris and Steve. How are you guys today? Doing great, great Jerry. Jerry. Great, great to have you on. Uh, my my current position is director of field operations at Professional Kennel Club, and um, I've I've been there for coming on nine years now. Wow, that's amazing. Time flies. It's amazing. Well, yes, it Jerry and Steve have a have a long history together too. You guys, you want to talk about that a little bit, Steve? Well, yeah, for sure. When I went to the PKC, I, I knew Jerry. I believe we, I'm sure we met during my UKC days, Jerry. But yeah. I know when I went to PKC, I, I knew uh, that you were quite active in the PKC Walker Association and uh, uh, always uh, involved. And of course, I knew about your breeding of your train walkers and, and all that. And then, uh, uh, and we're going to get into some of these things, but uh, when uh, I answered the call of American Kennel Club to go uh, to go to Raleigh, North Carolina, and work with that company, uh, I was uh, a little surprised and very, very glad that I was able to coach this guy to come along with me and be uh, a right arm, so to speak, in that effort to. Uh, write a new set of rules and try to get a coonhound program going with the AKC. So Jerry and I go back a long way. I know you and uh, Chris have fought those legislative wars in Indiana, um, Jerry. And of course you and I fought the corporate wars and all the other things that come along with <laughs> being at a, at a major coonhound registry. I will tell you this, this is kind of funny. I know the first time I heard of Chris Powell, <laughs> was uh, probably from you, Jerry. Uh, and I remember thinking, you know, your hunting buddy is a game warden. Man, that must be a, a cross to bear right there. I don't know how you, <laughs> how you handle that. But anyway, our listeners should know that Jerry and I go back a long way, too. And, and I'm sure not as long as, as you and uh, uh, Jerry do, Chris. But it's been a great um uh, friendship and I, that I value very highly, and I'm just uh, very pleased that he's on the program today. Yeah, so this probably is going to take a lot of rabbit paths because all three of us know each other so well, and we've even though we have a show outline, uh, it's probably going to take some rabbit paths. And the first one I'll take is uh, Jerry. Do you remember this? Remember how we met? Uh, yeah, I I believe uh, I talked to you a few times just casually uh when we happen to be at the the cross plains uh king club down by uh versailles um at a couple different events but nothing you know nothing too extensive uh but then i uh during the years that i uh operated salt creek supply um a little hunting store business um during that period i'd had a uh, an issue with a, um, I guess a, a neighbor uh, of some land I was hunting on that that somehow took on the uh, idea that he was he was a landowner and he wasn't, and he happened to be a uh, a state police officer and 
and anyway that that became quite an ordeal and i contacted you for advice and uh and we started talking and and actually i think that may have been the the very light beginnings of the hoosier tree dog alliance because all those discussions uh kind of evolved into you know we really need some representation in this state for for coon hunters and and uh and dog lovers well let's back up a little bit i think we met before that in a in a cornfield okay. that that had been had some silage spread oh, on it. Okay. <laughs> yes. 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 Uh, yeah. That's that's a pretty good story that that uh, <laughs> I missed after your first question, but but yeah, let, let me kind of kind of lay that one out. It was um, <laughs> it was about three weeks before the PKC World Championship in in Aurora, Kentucky, and I'm gonna guess it was about in in uh 1998 or somewhere close around there right and um and i was getting my dog molly ann ready for the pkc world hunt and uh and my neighbor who's a dairy farmer here had just chopped off uh a cornfield for silage so it was like walking on carpet i mean you were walking out there on dry dirt you weren't making a sound and it was one of those nights that was lightly moonlit, and uh, Molly Ann was was way in some uh, thickets in there, and she was kind of a what you might call a semi-silent dog. And I was standing out in a cornfield, just minding my own business, and I was running the six on her every time she would hush, yeah, and uh, just curious about what she was going to do with this track, and uh, just out of the blue. I was in my own little world there, and, and a light flashed in my eyes, and somebody said, halt conservation officer, or something similar. And, uh, and He's always been on a up. power trip, Jerry, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Go and, ahead. Uh, my, my heart just about jumped out of my chest because I thought I was the only one in the world out there, <laughs> uh, you know, a few hundred yards from the truck. And, um, and I can remember one of the, uh, one of the first questions he asked me as I was, uh, I turned sideways a little bit to talk to him and I could see out of the corner of my eye, there was a, a light flashing around my truck. And he said, do you have any firearms with you? And I just held my hands up and said, you can see, I don't have any. He said, yeah, but do you have any in the truck? I said, well, why don't you ask your buddy out there looking through it? <laughs> I stood there and watched. And, uh, I I stood there and watched you for probably. You were involved in in running that stopwatch on Molly Ann because I stood there and watched you from probably ten feet away, right out in the middle of the open cornfield for probably, I don't know. It was it was it seemed like ten minutes. It was probably more like a minute and a half or two minutes, and uh, didn't see any firearms around you or anything. But uh, yeah, that was that was an epic encounter right there that's probably the best stalk i ever put on a human being in my life but it uh it wasn't it wasn't that difficult with you being distracted in the in the conditions that's for sure (laughs) (laughs) that uh that was definitely was the first time i met you so yeah that that is a good memory (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah and then from there we just uh we just kind of 
I think I stood out there with you and listened to that, listened to Molly Ann work that track for, for a while. And, and, uh, that's kind of where it all started. Yeah. 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 Well, Chris, uh, let's ask Jerry a little bit about who he is. For those of you, I know we have a lot of listeners around the country that may not be, uh, tuned in to the Coonhound sport the way we are. And, uh, I'd like for Jerry just to, uh, Give us a little information about uh, who he is and, and his family. I, I think there's a remarkable story there, Jerry, about you and your wife, Brenda, and your families. Can you get into that a little bit? Sure. Um, I, was, uh, I, was, I was born in uh, southeastern Indiana around a little town called Batesville, and uh, I'm the youngest of 13 children. Uh, I have five brothers and seven sisters and um, grew up on a little 80-acre farm. Uh, None of my family ever hunted or was interested in hunting. I did get a couple of my brothers to go squirrel hunting with me a couple of times, maybe rabbit hunting and and coon hunting once or twice, but that's it. Um, My dad, as you can imagine, having 13 kids, uh, was pretty focused on work. Uh, he was probably the hardest working person that I've ever met. Uh, when I was growing up, he, he had three jobs. Uh, he drove a, um, a pop delivery truck around to the local stores at that time. You know, there were just small stores scattered all over and he drove a, a delivery truck, uh, in the morning and then in the afternoon, he would take care of his farming things. And then at midnight, he would uh, go to a truck stop and he worked there till seven in the morning. And then he would start all over again. And uh, so he he convinced me pretty early in life that uh, that there was no time for hunting. Well, his time so, management uh, must have been really good because you've got uh, twelve brothers and sisters. Yep, yep. <laughs> uh, he found time for fa- to, to build he was a family. Good at that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, I was probably um, I was at a young age when we first uh, um, got the got indoor plumbing, and I can still remember taking baths in the summertime in, in uh, galvanized tubs outside. Uh, and of course we had the old outhouse and, uh, but, uh, so we, we grew up a little bit poor and, you know, gradually improved things as we, as we went along. Uh, I was probably four years old when my first brother went, uh, was drafted for Vietnam and then my second oldest brother the next year. And then my third oldest brother the following year. Hmm. Um, but, uh, to uh that's a little about me and then uh as steve was asking about brenda this is the amazing um, part too (laughs) when i was when i was uh 16 uh going on 17 i worked uh a summer job at, at the local dairy queen as a cook and um brenda sister uh, Mary also worked there, and she was a couple years older than me, but roughly the same age. And during that summer, uh, Mary had her little sister, 
Brenda come there and and uh, bust tables on Sunday morning because we had a big breakfast thing on Sundays. And uh, so that's where I met Brenda. She was 11 years old at the time. And uh, so we were far enough apart in age. We really didn't pay any attention to each other much, but but uh, that's where I met her. But uh, coincidentally, Brenda is uh, the, also the youngest of 13. Uh, and just the opposite <laughs> of me, they had they had seven boys and six girls. Hmm. But uh, we started dating uh, when I was 25, and uh, we got married when I was 30. And Bre- Brenda's five years younger than me. And uh, to answer the question, most people ask when uh, when I tell them that we're both the youngest of 13. No, we had no plans to have 13 kids. Uh, we stopped at three. <laughs> well, those... uh, that's great. Yeah, go ahead, Steve. No, no, I just, uh, I I know you have too, Chris. I've had the privilege of meeting Brenda and, mm-hmm. and Nick and Aaron and, and uh, Bethany and uh, just the great kids. What, what are the kids doing now? That was going to be my question. Uh, well, it just so happens. Uh, today, Nick is taking the first day of his bar exam. He's got the second full day tomorrow. So he's in Indianapolis today. Uh, he graduated with a law degree from IUPUI. And uh, so he's uh, get, trying to get through his bar so he can uh, get a real lawyer job. Um, so we're our thoughts and prayers are with Nick today so he gets through that. Uh, and, uh, Aaron, uh, graduated, uh, from Franklin college a couple of years ago with a degree in, um, in school counseling. And she's actually working a job in, um, in Chris's old stomping ground, the Columbus and Barth- Bartholomew County, uh, with the, uh, social services there. She's counseling kids and during the day and she's, uh, She's going to school at night at Butler University mm. in Indianapolis uh, to get her master's. So she's working on that. And our youngest, Bethany, um, she graduated last month from Franklin College with a degree in in uh, art history and photography. Yeah. Uh, amazing. And, uh, it, it's amazing. Coincidentally, yesterday uh, was the 10th anniversary of uh us finding out that bethany uh had a brain tumor so uh we're very thankful for how all that went and uh very blessed that uh she's doing as well as she is yeah not for sure that's that's a great success story by itself bethany's story but uh, that was probably the first time not the first time but one of the most memorable times that i saw houndsman come together to uh support your family there jerry and and i still remember being out there at uh, the old carthage coon hunters club for that benefit dinner and and i think we had an auction and different stuff for and and uh, it's amazing the the heart and the spirit of our houndsman when there's a fellow houndsman in need it, it was overwhelming and it's still something that i reflect on quite often yeah yeah well jerry uh you're a boilermaker, right? Yes, I. I if not uh, by trade, 
at least by <laughs> loyalty, right? Yes. In uh, in the eighties, uh, I was going to school and and in the evenings, and in a couple of those years, it really put a damper on my coon hunting because I was going to school either three or four nights a week, and with all the driving and my regular job and uh, studying and whatnot. Uh, I did not put a whole lot of time in my dogs and, and it showed, uh, but it was, uh, it was one of those things, one of those things I was motivated to get it done. And so I, I hit it pretty hard there till I was done. So you did, uh, you have, what degrees do you hold it at, at uh, Purdue, Jerry? I, I, I finished my degree in, uh, organizational leadership with Purdue. I see. And that's and come I, in I handy. was extremely fortunate. Yes, it has. And and I was extremely blessed and fortunate to to finish my degree with a four and and that was my goal and it it uh it came through for me. You know, I think of you a lot down here, Jerry. Uh we're I'm a baseball fan. Love the sport. We've got a Hoosier kid down here with the Tampa Bay Rays named Kevin Kiermeyer. He's a platinum glove center fielder, amazing to watch this kid play ball. And he is a diehard Purdue fan. Hmm. I mean, at every mm-hmm. opportunity that he can, he talks about Purdue. And I always think about you when he does. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jerry, what were some of your earliest memories of uh, of hunting and, and getting involved in the hounds? Well, uh, my first, uh, encounter, I guess you would say, um, as a young boy, I would often, uh, go outside and listen, uh, once I heard hounds running or, or treed for the first time, then quite often I would go outside and listen for it. And I I guess I must've been around the age of 11 or 12 or so then, um, and our farm house sat kind of up on a plateau and we had a creek that ran down um just a quarter mile uh to the east of us and then to the to the west of us probably a half or three quarters of a mile was another creek and those creeks both kind of met uh quite a ways to the north of us so up on top of the hill where the farmhouse was i could hear a long way and um back in those days one, you could. one night yeah there wasn't much uh our, our closest neighbor was was a mile away and probably the second closest neighbor was two miles away so we had, we were kind of secluded and uh and one one time i got the notion i, I stepped out on the porch and and heard dogs treed down by the creek so i just went and got dressed and snuck out of the house and went down there of course <laughs> my mom was pretty upset with me when she found out because i and i kind of sh- uh, scared the uh the guys hunting down there about like chris scared me the <laughs> night he he walked up on me but i just walked up there and they thought i was gonna try to run them out of there or something and uh i quickly explained that i just wanted to see what was going on because i was interested but uh and so i hunted with them there a little bit less on into that night and then they dropped me off at the house and and then they would come by and pick me up once in a while after that to go with them but that's how i got my my start and my interest um 
the only thing we had around the house was a German Shepherd, and and I started hunting him at night. And I did get him to where I could I could tree possums with him, but that's a, I never did tree a coon with him. But I was pretty <laughs> excited to do that. That's awesome. Well, did you have any early uh, mentors or people that influenced you to to get more involved in hunting? I mean. We all seem to have those people in our backgrounds. Yeah. Uh, one of the guys I ran around with from high school, um, he had a dog and, uh, it was, it was about like what I started out with. It wasn't much, uh, when, uh, it was in, uh, another interesting story. When I bought my first coon hound, um, it was a blue tick there you and go. I can remember it was from from Glenn Markham's, uh, stock. I think he's from, he was from Missouri, but, uh, anyway, uh, my buddy that I was, was, that I hunted with a little bit was telling me that a guy had him for sale over by Sunman and, uh, and I'd saved up my money from trapping and, uh, and detasseling corn and whatnot. And, uh, so I was ready to buy something. So I went over and looked at this dog and he was, uh, a nice looking dog. And so I talked to the guy a little bit and, and made plans to come back that night to go hunting with him. And, uh, so I show up at the, at his house and of course I was, uh, maybe 15 at that time. And, um, the, uh, another guy was there talking to him about the dog. And, uh, <laughs> I'm more after they were done talking there, I said, well, you ready to go hunt? And he said, well, he said, uh, if you want the dog, I'll sell him to you. But if you don't want him, this guy's going to buy him right now. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> we're not going hunting. So you can, you can imagine what happened then. Right. Uh, he, uh, he, uh, he had me set up with his buddy there. And, and so I bought the dog and, spent two hundred dollars on it and uh took it home and tied it behind i, I was a real smart kid as you can imagine <laughs> i tied it behind the bar i tied it behind the barn so dad wouldn't know i had it, <laughs> <laughs> it, it didn't take him too long to figure out there was a blue stick ball in the back there but uh and he was pretty upset with me for wasting my money on a tuna not to mention that i'd be out at night and then him wanting me up at five the next morning to help but uh but he was uh he was a big pretty dog had a big big mouth on him and he would tree a coon but i would have to sprint through the woods to get to him because he would locate two or three times and if you weren't there by that end of that third locate he was gone running again <laughs> um but but i was able to kill a few coons with him after i learned kind of what he was doing um but mostly it was just walking through the woods with him. Yeah. Run your uh, life. And then, <laughs> and then, uh, as, as time went on over the next several years, I bought some, um, I bought a couple of registered red bones and I even had a black and tan and none of those really panned out for me. I guess the first good dog I had, um, I went to try a, a, a uh, what was supposed to be a broke dog out over by Clinton, Indiana, and um, and the dog looked kind of so-so, 
but the guy had a crossbred female out of that walker dog and a red bone and she the the pup looked just like a red bone but it was it was actually a crossbred and uh and when we got back to this house i ended up buying that pup that was running around there and i i guess that was the first dog i really trained and uh she turned out to be a really nice dog one of the best track dogs i ever owned and uh unfortunately she got killed on the road when she was about three but but uh but that was probably my first good dog or what i considered to be a good dog back in those days right Uh, well it sounds like things have kind of come circle full circle with you on that jerry but we'll get into that a little bit later but i'm thinking as you're talking about crossbreds i know you've uh yeah dab- dabbled in those waters a little here uh, uh lately but anyway i don't want to i don't want to jump ahead there uh but go ahead uh but then uh i'd i'd gotten a uh, another crossbred uh walker uh pup and uh he was about as ugly as you could get. In fact, the guy, the guy got him from nicknamed him Super Ugly. His, uh, <laughs> if you can picture this, uh, a Walker dog's head and half of his face was red with a cauliflower ear, and the other half was solid white with a red ear. <laughs> and uh, you probably can't get much uglier than that. But anyway. The, that's that's the dog that taught me what a track dog was supposed to be like he um he started early and he kind of had me confused the first few times i hunted him with other dogs because they would run a track and they may strike a track here close to you and he would immediately go if he wasn't with them he would go to them and then you'd see him run away from them and he was the type of dog when he smelled a track, he wouldn't ever, he would never trail a track. He would pick his head up and he would, he would go to, toward the coon. Hmm. And, uh, as, as he got better, then what was happening was those other dogs would still be trailing and he'd already be treed and they would trail right in there to him. But he was a, an amazingly fast dog. In fact, uh, during rutting, uh, deer rutting season, he would he would catch some deer on the ground, and <laughs> so that was my first ex- that was my first experience with the with the uh, original style Tritronics. Um, <laughs> with the expandable and antenna conversations about yeah. <laughs> Remember the six yeah. foot expandable antenna? Was it that thing was like four feet long and. Of course, you if you weren't careful yeah. with it, it'd snap off right at the at the. You break it, yeah. right? Exactly. Yeah. I borrowed <laughs> and get one. Get to send it and back. I, <laughs> yep, I borrowed one it, one it time didn't, and didn't broke it good. off. Yeah, those weren't completely reliable, but when they worked, they worked, and and uh, so I was able to to correct him a few times, but uh, but that was back when hides were worth a lot of money. And the hunting pressure was really hard around here. And um, and I hunted out of an old four-door Plymouth. And he would sit in the back seat. And uh, if I seen a coon cross the road, it didn't matter where it was. I'd just hit the brakes and pull over. And, and I'd reach back and sling that back door open. 
and uh, I would get the car parked, and usually by the time I parked the car, he was either treated or had the coon caught on the ground. He was just an artist at that. Hmm. Do you but, know uh, anything about? Think. Do you know anything about his background, Jerry? As far as the breeding on yep. either side of him? No, all I knew was he was out of a walker, and mm-hmm. the guy didn't know what the other side was. I got you. But he he looked like he may have had some bird dog in him because he was uh, chicken breasted, and uh, I mean. If you were going to paint an ugly dog, he was pretty, probably it. But uh, <laughs> he uh, he had a really exciting, squally mouth on him. And when he opened on a track, everybody knew what he was doing. You know, he he'd uh, he'd get your attention pretty quick. Um, but I guess the first registered Walker dog I had when I got started getting interested in in uh competition hunting um i'd went to my first competition hunt with a, with a friend of mine down to dupont indiana and we didn't actually stay for the hunt i just wanted to go down and see what the excitement was all about and they had a trend contest when we pulled in and was going on i bet they they probably had 50 dogs in the trend contest mm-hmm. and they probably had 30 or 35 in the in the bench show and and probably 50 in the night hunt and it was just a regular weekend ukc hunt and that was probably i don't know i guess 1979 somewhere around there maybe um but uh but i started getting more and more interested in that and i seen an ad in the american cooner that john monroe had a dog out of uh, finland river joe that was the night champion he had for sale and I think that was about 1982. And I'd, I'd met John at Walker Days at Rushville, Indiana in 1980. Uh, and uh, so I kind of knew who he was. And I called him and talked to him about the dog. And me and a friend of mine drove out there in January, I think in 82. And he was, uh, it was, by the time we went hunting, it was, somewhere below 20 degrees and i think it was about eight degrees when we got done and i think he treated three or four coons hmm. so he was one of those old Finley river type cold nosed dogs and i really never did like that style of dog but he was extremely good at what he did so i ended up buying him and uh that uh, a couple months later i went to my first night hunt com- uh, entered in my first night hunt i should say at Liberty, Indiana, hunted in a night champion cast down there. Donna Huber and Carl Sasser uh, judged and guided the cast. Um, and I was about as nervous as you could get. I couldn't hardly write my my entry slip. My hand was shaking so bad, and I got out there, and I was I was making all kind of calls that wasn't really needed or, or wanted. <laughs> That the judge told you all you got to do is call your dog, son, and you said, "All right, I can do that." Right? right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's but, uh, great. That's great. Well, what what were the so that was a Finley River bred dog? When did you yeah, decide? He was, he, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, he he was direct out of Finley River Trail. I got gotcha. you. 
Well, that competition thing is something that you've been successful at, Jerry, uh, no doubt. And, uh, uh, you know, I, as I uh, think back on your breeding down, down through the years and seeing the times that you got your name called, as we like to say, um, what, but leading up to that, what, what were some of your early experiences that you can uh, uh, remember that would stand out? Maybe our listeners would find interesting of those early days of competition hunting. Well, the, the, the dog, his name was Bing. I guess he was named after Bing Crosby. But uh, <laughs> I, uh, I put him in a few hunts, and I was just kind of getting my feet wet. And uh, I got a lot of compliments on the dog just because of his nose. I can remember one time in particular, I went to Shelbyville, Indiana, to a night hunt. And it was it was about this time of year. And it, you know, we were short on rain and, and everything was just powder dry. And the cast was guided somewhere over there near Milroy. And uh, it, I can remember when we cut the dogs loose, there was a cloud of dust. I mean, you couldn't even see the bean field for a little bit. That's how dry it was. And it wasn't long and Bing struck. And uh, he trailed that track for over an hour. And during that time, all three of those other dogs struck on the track at least twice each and came back. So they were all in minus trouble. And it, it was about an hour and a half later, he treated and had a whole tree full of kittens. But my guess was always that that, that litter probably moved about noon that day. But, but, uh, wow. he, he wasn't, he wasn't my style of dog, but he, that's the kind of thing he would do. And, uh, and again, back, back then was when hides were worth a lot of money. And I can recall another instance I ran into some, some buddies of mine was out, I was out coon hunting one night in December and it was a cold night and uh I'd went by this woods once and seen their truck parked there I'd planned on hunting there and and just went on and I went somewhere else and came back by there and they were just coming back to the truck and so we was were sharing hunting stories and whatnot and I said hey while you're while we're talking I'm going to cut this dog loose and they said we just come out of there I said yeah I know I just want to see what he'll do and uh, they had just hunted this place for a couple hours, and I kept being in there, and he struck and trailed around there for about 45 minutes and treating had a coon. And uh, that, they were pretty impressed by that. But uh, but that's just the style of dog he was. But, On uh, those uh, bad the- nights like that, those kind of dogs will shine, but most of us are too impatient to hunt that kind of dog, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. And that, that was my problem with him. I, uh, I would sit there and think about all the things I could or should be doing while he was trailing. <laughs> and, uh, and it, it was, it was about like deer hunting for me. I'm not a very good deer hunter because I sit in the stand about 10 minutes and I started thinking of all the things I'd rather be doing. That's some of but, that, uh, that's some of that George Mall influence on you. I think that, I think that's probably it. Yeah, Maybe I... it's, I'm thinking I'm in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what about the? Uh, oh, do you have another story about Bing or about those early dogs? Well, the the one thing it, it got me thinking, you know, I'd, I'd like uh, everybody, I would pour through that American Cooner every month when I got it, 
and uh, and see all these people raising these puppies and how they were going to be the next world champions and whatnot. And I thought, well, you know, I I could raise a few litters out of this dog. He's pretty good. He'll probably throw some good dogs. So I bred a couple of my friends, Walker females, and I I bought a Walker female that was out of Tennessee lead and, and Dahoney Sally, and she was a decent dog, not outstanding, but she would treat coons, and I, I bred her. And the end result was, some of those dogs did make decent dogs, but a lot of them were between a year and a half and two years old before they ever started to treat. Um, they wanted to do a lot of running and trailing, and and um, they just about had to see something climb to uh, to get them started treeing. And then you know once they started, that some of them made pretty decent dogs. But but again, the the, the impatient thing of mine. That, I, it just wasn't going to work for me. Um, and, uh, and another thing that happened that, that set me way back was that, uh, that Bing got that coonhound paralysis mm. and he just about died. You know, I, I went for about three weeks there spoon feeding him and carrying him outside to go to the bathroom and all that. And he finally came back to the point that, you know, you could hunt him, but he just never was the same dog after that. So um, I started kind of moving on from that. And I guess from a from a breeding standpoint, uh, uh, everything kind of changed when when I I uh, hunted with a a Walker a young Walker female that uh, that Tim Buckler and uh, and um, his name escapes me at the moment. Uh, Cecil Dake from um, down by Blooming Grove, Indiana, uh, had a, a young Walker female that I hunted with, and and um, I bugged him and bugged him until I got her bought, and that was my original Annie female, and uh, she was way more my style of dog. She was quick uh, on both ends, and and uh, pretty independent for a dog you know, in the early eighties. Um, but, uh, that's kind of where all my breeding began. Uh, and it seemed like every dog I bred or two, I, I got something out of it. I liked, uh, even if all of them didn't turn out, I, I would always get something I liked and, and everything I've got in a kennel nowadays goes back to her. So I've been pretty blessed with that. Well, so roughly how many years have you been breeding you would consider uh from when from when you started breeding jerry up to the present about how many years has that been probably somewhere between 35 and 40 years if you count it if you count the years i was very unsuccessful <laughs> <laughs> well we all have those years for sure for sure Chris? Yeah, I was just going to kind of take us back to, uh, you know, some of those early, comp well, back to the competition hunting, Jerry. You know, when I met you, uh, you were, like Steve said, you were, everybody always knew you were there, and everybody was always, always worried about drawing you um, and your hounds, not, you know, not worried, but they, they knew that you were packing something. And uh, can you talk a little bit about some of your significant wins in competition hunting? 
Yeah. Um, early on. Um, this is your chance to brag. I didn't do. I, I know that's out of character. <laughs> I know that's out of character for you, but but we're gonna we're gonna uh, expose that so that people know who who we've got on here because I'm I've always been impressed with uh, the style of hound you hunt and go for it. Well, speaking of exposed, I guess that's a that's a a good word to use because once I started hunting in the night hunt. One thing that was exposed pretty quickly is I wasn't a very good handler, and uh, you always say I found, that. Found out pretty quick. I found out pretty quickly that if I was going to win anything ever, I was going to have to have a dog good enough to do what they were supposed to do, plus make up for my mistakes, and and that was kind of hard to come by. But um, my first, I would say really good competition dog was uh, a female called Ann too. And, um, she was a lot like her mother. She, she was out of Annie and, and Matney Southern pride. She was a lot like her mother, but, but she was just better in, in each of the departments that her mom was, she was a lot like her, but she was just better. Mm-hmm. And, uh, she was the type of dog that, that, uh, if there was a working track or running track, she could take one. I mean, she could compete well with both of those, and she would uh, she would create a layup uh, when nothing else was going on. So she was she was probably the best balance, one of the best balance dogs I ever had. And and back in those days when I had her, there wasn't a whole lot of independent dogs i mean once in a while you'd have a dog tree off by itself but but chances are if you went to a hunt you were going to have a culling contest from from the time you turned loose till you got done i mean whoever struck first whoever treated first Mm -hmm. and and she was good at that because uh she was a one bark tree dog and 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 i didn't make as many mistakes with her as i would normally and and even when i did make mistakes she she bailed me out quite often. Um, I won the won the Lee Crawford hunt with her. In uh, explain in what 19- that is, Jerry. Explain to our okay. listeners what the Lee Crawford hunt is. Okay. Well, the, my first Walker days that I went to in, in 1980 at Rushville, Indiana. At that time, Mr. Lee Crawford was the president of the Walker Association, and Lee was one of those guys, and I'm sure you met him, Steve. But he sure. was one of those guys that, that would stick in your mind as um, so, something to aspire to. Uh, if you if you heard his name mentioned anywhere, uh, it was always positive, never negative. And when you talk to him about other people, uh, it was always positive and never negative. He just was a class act kind of guy, and he held that reputation and. Uh, after he passed away, the Walker Association created a memorial hunt uh, called the Lee Crawford Invitational, and and you had to qualify by um, placing in a Walker Days or a Walker Sectional or or something like that. Uh, right. And um, and so one of my first time, it, it may have been the first time I ever competed in in the Lee Crawford hunt. I don't remember that for sure, but, 
it was in 1980, 1992, and it was uh, at uh, Richmond, Indiana, um, and it was, uh, and I, and it was the first year that uh, that a a Walker female ever won the hunt, and uh, I was fortunate and drew out on a good cast, and and I think memory serves me, I had. Uh, I had scored 1150 and I, I made one of my handler mistakes and, and won the cast with 1075, I think. And, um, so I was, I was pretty excited. It was the first really, you know, national type win that I had. And it just so happened that, that Brenda was with me. And, um, and, uh, so it made it, it made it that much more special. Which I remember uh, that picture very well. Yeah, which <laughs> that was with Ann too, wasn't it? Yes. Okay. That was Ann too. Yeah. And then the following year, um, I kind of got a roll on a roll with her, and and I I got through the UKC zones, and uh, and got to the the finals up at Van Wert, Ohio, and uh, I think that was one of the times I I sat down and talked to Steve a little bit. That was the year Duke Prue won the world mm-hmm. hunt. And uh interesting story about that. As luck would have it, she was looking real good and I got first I got through the first night easily. Um the the early round against Doug and then the late round I think she treated two or three coons by herself. And uh when we got ready for when I went out and got her out of the dog box to take the next round of pictures the next on Saturday, uh, she was dripping blood. Mm. And, uh, so I, I let her in there for the pictures and I was following her sweeping up her blood with my foot. Uh, so nobody would see it. And, uh, and she just, as, as sometimes happens, uh, with, with females, her coming in heat, she really kind of lost her mind and, and she didn't look, she didn't look good at all the next round. So I didn't make it in the final four and, uh, end up placing 11th. 11th in the world hunt. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. Pretty good stuff right there. Uh, now you said she was out of matinee Southern pride. Yes. Okay. That's a dog that some of our older listeners or longtime listeners will remember. Um, why did you pick that dog to breed to Jerry? Well, um, early on, I got, I got interested in family breeding, uh, early on. And, and the old Annie female was, uh, a double Finley river and double spring Creek rock bread dog. And, uh, so, and I, and Southern pride was directly out of Finley river banjo. And, and, uh, so, I wanted to double up on that a little bit, and and that's how that happened. Right. So, what drove uh, you? I'd hunted with a. What drove your interest to family breeding, Jerry? I mean, you had you hadn't been hunting that long, and and back in those days, uh, family breeding, probably m- maybe my memory just isn't as good, but uh, it doesn't seem like that was really talked about a whole lot back then. So, what what piqued your interest in that? Well, I, uh, my interest in it probably became more through livestock breeding, uh, for mm-hmm. cattle and hogs 
and there's a lot of that going on there and and uh so i was kind of used to to seeing that being done and uh used to seeing good results from it so it's uh it was probably based more on that than it was on dogs well let's uh let's progress a little bit and talk about some other just kind of give us a laundry list of of uh because you always hunted a female for the most part when I went through the years, and I know that you've uh, been fond of hunting those females, and you've had a lot of good success with those. So kind of run through a laundry list of the females that have been successful and, and where they've won. Yeah. Well, I, I started out with, with the original Annie female, and I, I placed her in Walker days, um, two different years one was in um out in cedar rapids iowa and then uh the next year i think that was 1980 maybe 86 and 87 uh cedar rapids iowa and then the next year van word ohio um and she was just a registered dog so i think i placed her seventh one year and maybe ninth another year something like that uh then and two, we w- we went through pretty much what I won with her. Um, she was the first and two was the first dog I ever hunted in a PKC hunt in my life. Mm-hmm. I went to my first hunt at Dupont, Indiana, and um, and got in a funnel and and they split and I was driving home with money and I thought this is a pretty good deal. <laughs> so I, that kind of hooked me a little bit there. Um, the uh the third female um that i was doing real well with and ended up selling her mainly because of the schooling thing was a female called dixie out of old annie and and houses lipper i drove out to uh to missouri and bred to to lipper when uh, mac McAllister had him and i had it i'd kept a female and her name was dixie and she was definitely the right kind uh, and I ended up selling her and, uh, then later on in life, I bought her back and, and, uh, bred her to nail her mm-hmm. and, uh, and that, and I got a female of that cross and that was where Molly Ann came from. Um, and she was, uh, one of the better dogs I've ever had. Uh, she could, she could do most anything, most any way. And she was probably the first really independent dog I had as far as, uh, not that the other ones wouldn't split tree once in a while, but Molly Ann was probably the first one that, that went out there with the intent to be away from other dogs. She just would, she would intentionally go the opposite way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that also helped out my poor handling skills because I didn't have to get in a hurry about anything, but, <laughs> uh, <laughs> she was, she was always good about having a coon and, and, uh, and, and I never really won anything really big with her qualified her for the world hunt several times and won a decent amount of money in PKC with her. And she was a dual grand champion. And, and, uh, and there was a, a female out of Ann too. And Don Gustavke's old lippers, Mac dog, um, that I called Ann three and she was, she was pretty special. Um, and, 
it was during the same time I had Molly Ann, and I was having I was struggling trying to keep both of them hunted. And uh, Danny Wilson, which I think both of you guys know, right for sure, down by down by North Vernon, he was hunting her some for me, and um, he lost her. I, uh, he he had a theory that she got in one of those caves down in there because there is some in that area. Right. Yep, there are, and uh, never heard from again. But uh, I had bred her to um, to Sackett Junior. And uh, had really good results, and I got a female called Ann Four that that made a dual grand champion, and and was a nice female, um, and uh, so that that took me several years through there just to get through those dogs, and uh, and I bred uh, the next really good cross I made was when I bred Molly Ann to uh, Hardwood Henry. Uh, when he was a young dog yet, Brad Fleetwood still owned him. That's before the Burgesses bought Henry and, and, um, um, there was 10 pups out of that litter and that's where the Jenny female I had came from. And, uh, she was one of the best I had, uh, as far as a competition dog, she was probably the best I ever had and her her strongest point from day one, and it was just a natural thing, is uh, the first few coons I shot out to her, she didn't even look at them. She was wanting loose to go to go hunting, and I, I just about had to lead her over and show her what the coon was. But she was like that from day one and and forever, mm-hmm. and it's a and it's something I never really noticed that much in a night hunt, but that even when you recast off a tree, just about every dog uh, loses some downtime there. And even if it's not real noticeable, I mean, even if they go hunting, they don't necessarily do something right away. And that was, that was where she would really shine because when you cut her off of a scored tree, you know, before the other dogs got done messing around there, she would usually be struck or treed somewhere. And, and that's, that was her strong point. And what you tell uh, us what you what you did with Jenny because that's that's pretty cool too. Uh, as far Jenny, as Jenny, I won. There you go. Yeah, what you won I, with her? I won uh, in nineteen or in two thousand two. I I was third in the PKC World Championship, and then uh, in two thousand three, I was third in the UKC World Championship, and she got me in several semifinals of pro pro hunts and so on and so forth. Um, and I, uh, you know, she was a dog that I really enjoyed taking to a hunt because it took, it took so much pressure off of me because I just kind of let her do her thing. And, um, Jerry, and I think dog she's, I kinda, I'm sorry. I jump in there a minute. I think Jenny's no. the only one of your dogs that I've, had the pleasure of hunting with uh, over the years i think when i was with pkc and that was before your days of, of getting into the to the registry business uh we we hunted a couple nights i think with jenny and uh, she was she was a real deal and uh and the bottom line kind of increased when you let her go didn't <laughs> yep yeah it, it worked out well and uh she was a blessing to me and my family um in uh 
I lost my job due to a downsizing and um actually right after right after I placed her in, in the PKC World Championship in two thousand two and uh I really was bouncing around trying to decide what to do for a career and, and every I'd got several good job offers but they weren't uh they were not within driving distance of me and and with me and Brenda's uh, mom still living and us wanting to be close to them that really wasn't an option for me so I, I was going to start my own uh, business and uh, really didn't have the funds to start it and several people have been trying to buy Jenny and um, and then I of course the following year I placed her in the UKC World Hunt and that kicked that up a notch or two with people interested and then in um Early in, in 2004, uh, John Strickland called me about her, and I just really didn't want to sell her. I was waiting for her to come in heat, and I was going to breed her. Uh, but uh, he uh, he made me some offers, and, and uh, eventually he made me an offer that was extremely good. He said, or I'll give you less money, and I'll give you half of whatever she wins for the next year. I said, I'll do that. And, and uh, he was kind of surprised at how quick I accepted that. And I said, that's a no brainer. And uh, so it ended up, you know, uh, just about every Tuesday, it seemed like. Obviously, it wasn't every Tuesday, but several Tuesdays I would get a uh, an envelope in the mail from John Strickland. And, and that helped out a lot when I was starting my own business. Mm hmm. <laughs> that's a great story yeah, a is. great story you bet so jerry let's uh are you are you wrapped up there on was jenny pretty much your uh, the last dog that you you had any you know i don't want to say success because you've always been successful but uh winning winning success in competition um yeah the the one i kind of skipped over that wasn't born here is actually the first female that uh, there were there were two females that I bought through the years as as kind of an outcross or to use as outcrosses and they were both good dogs. One of them was um, was a, a female called Kiss. I was wondering and if you were she was talk just about a young Kiss. dog. Yeah, she she was just a young dog, and and uh, James Tyree hunted her for me in the Pro Championship and won that. And then the following year, I got uh, when the Super Stakes was all one Super Stakes uh, down in Aurora, Kentucky. I got her in the in one cast leading up to the final, in the I guess the second last semifinal cast on Sunday night with her, and got beat out. And uh, and she was a a really nice female. Again, she was one of those that wasn't my style necessarily but she was good at what she did she was a trailing type dog that would have coons when she treed and and probably her strongest point was uh if there was five coons in a acre woods she would you know if you keep recasting her she would tree every one of them she just she would she would go deep if she needed to but she she seemed like she could count those coons hmm. if you were in a cast that uh led away before they cut loose it would always put a smile on my face because I knew when we cut loose, she'd go behind us and tree one. Mm -hmm. Um, 
it was uh, both good and frustrating when you were trying to pleasure hunter because a lot of times you would go to a place you wanted to hunt and when you turned her loose you'd go the other way but uh but that was that was one of them and then the other one i bought was uh the dancer female which was the mother of hardwood henry and um she was another female that we wanted lee crawford with to hunt with um and I, I think that was in the in the 90s when i won that also well there's no doubt that um uh, you know the salt creek salt creek yeah those salt creek walkers have have made an impact i've seen over the years you you see them different handlers that that are have been successful with them and and uh the amazing thing to me was the way that you can identify the uh the salt creek dogs they're always a good looking hound they always have a huge horn on them uh they've got pretty good hunt they you know they they're just exceptional hounds as a as a as a whole and that's you've got you've definitely got the knack there for for being able to breed true to type there's no doubt but i've enjoyed uh my dogs through the years and and i've always felt like i've been blessed and lucky at the same time uh, mainly for the reason that you know i've 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 believed a couple of times in my life that I had the breeding thing figured out only, only to be convinced otherwise, uh, repeatedly. And, and <laughs> the, uh, no, no matter who, if somebody tells you they've got the breeding thing figured out, it kind of makes you wonder because, um, I've, I've made some crosses that I was just convinced would be the best thing since sliced bread and, and thoroughly disappointed and, I've made some other crosses expecting good results and had fantastic results. So it's, um, it's not a, it's not a complete science where you can, uh, like baking a cake where you, whatever ingredients you put in, you're, you know what you're going to get out because it does, it really doesn't work like that. You know, Jerry, this comes to mind with me. And I think I may have mentioned this a while back in a podcast as I go through pro hound each month, which is the, for our listeners, that's the PKC's uh, official magazine with all the results and the standings and so forth. The thing that really jumps out to me is that if you go down the list and look at whether it's the male leaders, female leaders, pup leaders, almost, well, the entire list is devoid of any one single dog dominating that list. There's, uh, if there's 15 dogs on that list or 20, whatever there are, there'll probably be 12 or 18 of those that are sired by different stud dogs that tells me that, you know, there's no one dog out there that's dominating the breeding activity and that we have done a good job apparently especially in the world of competition of, of producing dogs that can indeed produce themselves. So how does a breeder make a decision nowadays, really, as to which? And I know, I guess we're jumping ahead here a little bit, but I know that uh, there's been uh, a dog that you've picked uh, recently, a couple of dogs that you've picked recently to breed to. And as a, uh, a breeder myself, uh in years past, you know, I'm interested in 
breeders are doing. And uh, I know two dogs that uh, that stand out that I think our leaders can identify with that you've chosen to add to your breeding program. And Chris, if we're ready to go into this, I'd like to get Jerry's answer as to why uh, within your own breed, uh, you chose the Cuz dog, the Neosha River Cuz dog. And then uh, as we talked about crossbreds earlier, you uh, chose the big country dog with, uh, with uh, which Chris is very familiar. Uh, could you answer that for our listeners? Sure. Uh, the Cuz dog uh, was, I guess you would say, a traditional way that I try to pick a stud dog. Um, as uh, as old and gray-haired as I am, uh, most of the pedigrees have dogs in it that I'd hunted with, and uh, and the Cuz dog was an example of that. Several of the dogs in his pedigree I'd hunted with, and uh, so I was familiar with those and. Uh, the fact that in the last three or four years, uh, his reproduction across a lot of different females has been pretty pretty awesome, and uh, and so I look for consistency across different bred females, and and if possible, I definitely like to um, to breed to something that I've got some firsthand experience with. Uh, I mean, even if I know that a, a stud dog's throwing winners, I kind of like to get a pretty good idea of of what type of dogs they are because, as you both know, um, just because it's a winner doesn't mean it'd be something you'd like to hunt. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the a lot of the dogs in in Cuz's pedigree uh, fit the description of the kind of dogs I like to hunt. Um, as far as uh, the crossbreeding, um, you know, some people have asked me with, with being a walker breeder for all those years, I'm surprised you made a crossbred cross and, and all that. And I said, you know, my answer to that is, I, you know, it, it just w- was a, something that was interesting for me to see what I would get. And, and, uh, I thought I would try it. Uh, the reason I chose um, Big Country was because uh, knowing knowing Chris and Steve Burkholder and Donnie and uh, and Ken Cohn and their opinions of him and how high they were, uh, I thought that would be if I was going to try crossbred litter, that would be a good place to go. Well, it. Uh... I think those pups that came out of that cross uh, as a, a litter as a whole, people are pretty daggone happy with, with the results they got from that. Um, you're still, are you still hunting your female? I'll put you on the spot here a little bit. Uh, well, as, as much as you could say, I'm hunting her. She's, uh, I haven't put a lot of time in her. Uh, she's actually just going out of heat now, but, uh, but she's, she's a dog that will tree a coon. Uh, and she's got the looks and the mouth that I like, and she's got the, uh, a lot of natural tendencies that I like. Uh, but right now she's, she's still doing more running than I like. Right. Uh, we've talked about that, but when, but, uh, I'm hopeful, I'm, I'm hopeful that that's a stage, uh, I'd wanted to get her to 
to the point where I could hunt her by herself last season and just hunt her through the season and let her work her way out of that. And she just was not ready for that. But uh, she's to the point now, if if the season started tonight, I could def- definitely take her through it and, and enjoy it. Um, interesting that I'm talking about coon season now because most competition hunters don't care one thing about coon season. But the reason coon season works better for me nowadays, not because coons are worth anything or coon pelts are worth anything, it's just at that time of the year, my traveling finally slows down and I can actually hunt. <laughs> so. Right, right. <laughs> well, you've got a ton of stories to tell, Jerry, and, and uh, I always liked your stories about going up and hunting with Frank Gidding and, and uh, what an impact he had yeah. on your breeding program and how hard he hunted. And uh, just give us a real quick story about going up and hunting with Frank Gidding or what's the most memorable thing about hunting with Frank Gidding that you remember? Well, the the first time I went up to to hunt with Frank, actually, I went up to breed uh, uh, that female. Actually, I take that back. Um, I, I wasn't going to breed her. I was going to leave her there with him. Uh, the Ann 3 female just happened to be in heat at the time I had to make uh, a two- or three week trip over to Poland when I worked for Woodmiser and uh we were building a, a manufacturing plant over there and uh I was gonna have to be gone and, and I'd called Frank and asked him if he would uh keep her there for me and breed her and, and he did. So I took her up and dropped her off. But uh the interesting part I think it was in about May of the year and we were kinda having a monsoon for two or three days there and i got up there and it was still pouring down rain and there was probably eight trucks in frank's driveway people there to go hunting i think it was a friday or saturday night and uh, so we all went out and it was continued to pour down rain and uh and by about i don't know 11 o'clock it was down to four or five trucks and then by midnight it was down to three and Pretty soon it was just me and Frank, and we hunted till daylight. And uh, I think we, that night, I think we hunted at least three or four different pups out of Zach and Jr. And, and Jr. himself, we hunted early. And uh, I was really impressed with, with the young dogs out of, out, of, um, out of Jr. and was really happy that I was making that choice. Um, but, uh, but it was, it was a memorable night of hunting and I, I don't remember how many kids we treated, but we, we had a good time and, and, uh, and Frank was always, uh, one of those guys that if you went hunting with him, you knew he was a real coon hunter. <laughs> I remember so well my hunts with Frank over the years, Jerry up in Michigan and, I was fortunate enough, too, to hunt with Sackett Jr. several times and with several sons of his and uh, and all the good times. And we'd typically go over to Allen and Beth Snedeker's, uh, meet over there and hunt around that area and on. What a great guy he is. And uh, uh, I don't know if we could get Frank on a podcast or not. I'm not sure <laughs> that he would go for that. 
but while wow, the stories that he could tell for sure and uh, uh he he is the consummate coon hunter i don't think there's ever been a harder hunter than frank and uh, i know you and i uh, tried to to make a breeding uh uh, with the Walker female that I had out of a couple of different sons of Sackett Jr. Uh, that was your socket dog and your Sam dog. What about them? Well, uh, kind of like uh, Chris alluded to earlier, I always stayed away from male dogs. In fact, I think the, the Bing dog that I mentioned I bought from John Monroe, uh, I think that was in the, in the early eighties, that was the last male dog that I had and kept here until probably, uh, after the year 2000. Hey, Steve, the weather is still way too hot here. We're going to be in the 80 high eighties, low nineties with high humidity, but I'm still thinking about the upcoming hunting season. I'm seeing a lot of tech questions coming up on some of our electronic training equipment out there uh, from people that are that are bear hunting. They're in full swing with bear, bear training season right now across the United States. Have you been seeing that a lot on social media? I have. You know, I've been thinking myself about getting up to the mountains of Virginia and doing a little training myself. And, uh, yeah, you know, when technical questions come up uh, the the normal reaction is call customer service at the uh, equipment manufacturers and sometimes that can involve a long wait on the phone uh, our friends at w hunting supply have great tech support and i'm told if you call up there uh, that jason will get on the phone with you and, and get to the root of your problem right away so uh, if i have a problem with my equipment this fall that's what i'm going to do Sounds like a great idea, and Jason's going to be with us at the upcoming major coonhound event or hound event of the United States Autumn Oaks. So he's going to be in the booth with us. So you can stop by our booth, pick up all your Houndsman XP logo wear, and also pick Jason's brain about any questions you might have about your Garmin or Dogtra or whatever whatever platform you're using there to track your hounds. Absolutely. Uh, w Hunting Supply is a one-stop shop for everything the houndsman needs. Uh, they're online at www.dusupply.com. I always say that, that when you're hunting a female, it seems like they come in heat at the most inopportune times. And Jerry, what's your always your response to that? My my response to that is that that is true, and they do cause a lot of problems there. But from what I've seen over the years, the male dogs are in heat twenty four seven. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yep, male dogs are in heat three hundred and sixty five days a year, twenty four seven. So, Steve, <laughs> let's get back into the the uh, conversation we were having about you and uh, Jerry trying to team up to make make a cross. Okay, well, several years ago, most people know that I've had the plot breed all these years uh, passed down from my dad, who was a lifelong bear hunter. Uh, I also coon hunted those dogs and was happy with the breed, but I had the opportunity right after, uh, this was in my PKC days, and uh, 
that year in the PKC national race, it was really tight. And Jerry will probably remember this. A couple of dogs uh, named Mill Creek Molly and Silver Dollar Stone were embroiled in this really tight uh, national race. And I believe uh, Molly ended up winning that race by just a few dollars, if if I'm correct. Jerry, but then when I world, yeah, I think it was like six dollars or some some crazy uh, small turn uh, sum like that. But then I was fortunate enough to be out on the final cast at the World Hunt that fall uh, there at Aurora, and and Stone um, won the World Hunt. So shortly thereafter, I see a message on the PKC message board by Chris Allen who handled uh, Molly, uh, uh, and he says, uh, you know, we're taking her down to visit Stone. And I remember saying, you know, a cross like that would make me see spots. (laughs) And, um, well, I spoke too soon because Chris contacted me and said, uh, hey, uh, would you be interested in one of these pups? And I said, well, I might be. And he told me the price, and I gasped and uh, grabbed my wallet and held on tight but um anyway long story short i did get a puppy out of that cross and she turned out to be a real nice little female that i enjoyed hunting for many years and uh and so jerry and i got together and started talking about breeding so maybe you can take it from there jerry uh yeah i think we tried the the salt creek sam dog which he was out of uh sackett jr and my Anne three female and uh, at that time, I also had another stud dog I was breeding some, and that was the uh, dog I called Socket, and he was out of Sackett Jr. and Molly Ann. So he would have been a half-brother to the Jenny female. But, um, you know, I, I really never did like to hunt a male dog, and and uh, but I, I was kind of getting to the point that that I was not happy with the last few crosses I'd made and so I, I uh, went in search of some male pups that I'd sold at weaning age, and um, I bought the socket dog back from uh, a gentleman in Texas, and um, and I bought the Sam dog back from a guy in in Kentucky, and and um, I was extremely fortunate with both. I, neither one of them produced a lot of pups in their life. In fact, I think they were both over seven years old when I got them back, and hadn't sired any pups. And and uh, but I think they both have sired less than 250 pups. And you know their their pup earnings and 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 wins at UKC are have done pretty well for for a small number of pups. Well, the rest of that story on that female that I called Kelly was that she never did conceive. Uh, she, we tried to breed her later on and, uh, uh, you know, had her to reproductive specialists and the whole bit, but it just wasn't meant to be for her to, to, uh, have a litter, but man, that I was really excited about that back in the day, her being out of stone and him being a second junior bred dog down the line himself and, uh, and all, but, uh, all good stuff back in the day, huh, Jerry? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, let's get let's talk a little bit about your job. 
and uh, Chris can jump in here anytime he wants, but I think you and I, we had uh, Alan Gingrich with UKC on not long ago, and we talked about he and I had occupied the same chair up there in Kalamazoo, and and now uh, we're here with you, Jerry, and and uh, you and I have, have kind of taken similar paths in our careers, and and I'll just kind of set tee this up a little bit, but I want you to talk about TKC and your involvement with them, and uh, and uh, and just explore all the avenues we have time to do about that. But I know back when uh, I was uh, with PKC, and uh, uh, I began to be courted, I guess for a better word, the old timers will know what that word means, uh, by the AKC to come and try to build a coonhound program. And I finally succumbed to that uh, and uh, moved to Raleigh, North Carolina, and I knew I needed help. And, uh, Jerry, you were one of the first people on my mind, and uh, and uh, without going through all the details and all, you and I worked together along with Lindell Price and Jimmy Phillips and later with David McKee to build that Coonhound program. And, man, we hit the ground running, and we did a great job there for a while. If we could have just got the coon hunters to register their dogs, I think there would have been a, a bigger success story. But I really enjoyed working with you and found you to be particularly helpful in a couple of ways. Number one, you're an organizer. Uh, you're a detail guy. Uh, you know how to, how to get things done and do them properly. But you also have a great knowledge of the rules. And I think if you can remember back when – we sat down at my dining room table there in Raleigh and with the guys and, and numerous phone conversations put together uh, a brand new set of rules for the AKC. And that was all fun stuff. And I know you're a rules guy and I want to talk to you about rules and, uh, and, uh, your philosophies and so forth. But, uh, let's tell the listeners how long you've been with PKC and, a little bit about that journey up to this point. Okay. Um, well, during during your time with PKC, at, at that time I was I was the president of the Walker Association for PKC, and I was also on the executive board. So I was I was heavily involved in rule and policy stuff, even as a non-employee, and then. Um, in in November of 2004, I remember when you when you were uh, preparing to move to Raleigh, and we talked a few times, and and uh, it was kind of interesting. You were chomping at the bit to get the program going, and and I was excited about helping you with it. And you said, "Well, I I can't really hire you officially till the first of the year in 2005, but if you don't mind, start working now." <laughs> so it. Uh, <laughs> So I actually started helping you probably, <laughs> I think it was probably in November 2004. That's right. That's right. And uh, I knew which, the, which I had cool the, for, I, yeah, I knew I had the right guy when you agreed to do that, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I really enjoyed the, the time with AKC and, and because uh, it was something new, uh, not only in the AKC Coonhound program, because it was kind of, kind of starting fresh even though they'd had a coonhound program we were we were doing everything as a new 
kind of throwing out the old and, and starting from scratch. And that was exciting from a Coonhound registry standpoint. But for, for from a personal standpoint, I'd spent 24 years in the manufacturing industry and learning, trying to learn everything there was to learn about that. And then here I am in a Coonhound registry thing that I've never, never been involved in that business. So that was completely new for me. So it was exciting in several different ways and, and, uh, definitely enjoyed working with Steve and Lindell and Jimmy. Uh, when we would go to the bigger hunts, we always had a good time and always had good discussions and, and everything was always positive. Yeah, well, for sure. We did have good times and, uh, you know, it's amazing when you can, uh, you try to build a program and you can, you, or, or my philosophy was always, you know, uh, to try to build the best team that I could, you know, people that, uh, I don't, I never claim to know everything. And I learned so much from you, Jerry, and from Lindell, my longtime friend, Lindell and I go back probably 40 years at least. And, and Jimmy back to my days with the winter classic in Albany, Georgia. And, and also that, yeah, that was a fun time for me too, because, uh, we really, uh, you guys put up with me pretty well. And, uh, I, <laughs> I often thought, uh, after we'd have a meeting or whatever, I'd say, you know, I don't know why those guys put up with me, but I sure am glad they do. But, uh, yeah, those were good times. Well, let's talk about, uh, you going to PKC. I, I know that, uh, uh, you got an offer to go with them and, uh, and you and I discussed that and I sure hated to lose you. Uh, but, um, uh, just talk about your involvement now with PKC. Um, well, I started with PKC in September of 2010. So I'm coming up on my ninth year anniversary here before too long. And, uh, and the, the one thing that, you know, uh, people probably have the wrong impression of this type of a job at a registry, um, I think you know, from the outside looking in, it probably looks like, you know, you go to a big hunt and you take entries and, uh, when they're all done, you take pictures and, and that's about all there is to do. But, uh, I'm sure, you know, differently. And, uh, and you've got a, you know, you've got at least an eight or nine hour a day job. And then with, with PKC, at least, you know, you've got to have your phone on all night and, some nights you might get five or six phone calls and some nights you won't get any, but, but, um, but it's, a uh, it's a different, it's a little bit different than it kind of looks like from the outside. And the other thing that, that is, would probably be surprising to most people is how much of a clerical type job it is. In other words, it's just managing, managing a lot of details on the computer and, and uh, working out details with with people on the phone for upcoming events and this and that and whatever, and it's just it's just a lot of office work. Um, but uh, but as you alluded to, the, the probably the thing that I enjoy the most is working with with the Coonhound rules and uh, and trying to to teach uh, and mentor people uh, into learning the rules and and what I try to do as much as I can, when I can, is when somebody asks me about rules or is having trouble understanding something, 
I try to make sure that that I forward them the exact wording of the rule because it's it's so easy through the years and I it and and it's happened to me before early in my hunting career when I would ask another hunter about a rule you don't always get the right answer and it's easy <laughs> to say what the rule is or what you think it should be but a lot of times it's a whole different thing when you actually read the rule and and here's what it says and my philosophy has always been you know a lot of people you know you'll read the rule to them or explain the rule to them and they say well i don't think that's how it should be and my philosophy has always been i have no problem improving it or changing it you know through the process but until we do we've got to use what we've got and if it's flawed we will just change it when the time comes to change it and, jerry uh, if i can interrupt you there a humorous story <laughs> comes to mind i was at southeastern walker days one year there in the barn at salisbury and david garden was making an announcement to the crowd and there were probably 300 hunters there getting ready to go to the woods and all the buzz that was going on. And he said, now listen up guys. He said, I know. And this hunt was in February. He said, I know you guys have spent all winter long thinking up changes for these rules and thinking how they ought to be improved and and how they could be better. But I'm going to tell you right now, don't use those changes tonight. <laughs> use the rules that are on this scorecard. <laughs> and I thought that was pretty cool because we all have our own interpretations and philosophies and all, but uh, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I couldn't resist. <laughs> no, that's, that's all good stuff. And, and it, it just so happens we're in the, we at PKC are in the process of a rule change year now. Um, I think when you were with PKC, it was done every two years, and now it's done every four years. And so we just elected new national directors, and um, we're going through the rule change process right well, now. Well, explain that and uh, that uh, explain that process a little bit about how the rules committee is formed, or or uh, who makes the changes at PKC. Okay. Well, PKC is. A membership-based organization and and what that means is um, PKC manages the organization of PKC it, it manages all the events and the registration and whatnot uh, but all the membership makes up the PKC National Association and each breed and each state has a representative elected from the membership and that's called the breeder state president. And those are called um, the PKC national directors. And there's an election every four years. And following that election, which brings on new national directors, and some are reelected uh, to another term, and that gives them an opportunity to recommend rule changes. And once the rule changes are all received and and organized and, and uh, down on paper, then the uh, it's sent back to the national directors and they pour through those proposed changes and talk to their constituencies within their breed or state 
and then they vote on each one of those proposals. Um, and some years, uh, you know, those are those ones that make it out of uh, the national director scrutiny are sent to a committee, and they study it further, and then it's brought to a vote of, of the full body. And, and this year is probably going to be a little bit different in that um, the, the rules that rule proposals that are are preliminarily approved by the national directors will be voted on the full body of national directors. And those rules that pass, rule changes that pass, uh, will be implemented at, at the beginning of the new year, which our new year starts October 1st. So that that's the the kind of the process from beginning to end. I see. So if I've got a rule change burning in my soul, my uh, recourse is to go to my state representative or my breed representative and have him present that to the uh, the directors. Is that correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. Good, good. Well, Jerry. Well, what about – oh, go ahead, Chris. I was just going to – I was just going to say uh... – you know, over your over your tenure there at uh, PKC, you've developed a uh, kind of a a standard issue or maybe a slogan uh, for people who want to be successful in PKC, and uh, that's read your blue book and hunt your hound. How many did you coin that, or did did somebody else somebody else come up with that, Jerry? I, I think that was me based on experience, and and I also added something else to the end of that and read your read your good book. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. But uh, which I found also helpful. Right. Um, but the the uh, there's no, I mean, uh, and any experienced houndsman will tell you there there's no uh, substitute for knowing those rules. Uh, because it, it first off, it when you're training your hound, if you don't know the rules of the game, it's hard to train your hound to fit those rules. And so the the better houndsmen or the better trainers for competition hunting are the guys that know those rules and know know what's going to get you minus and knows what's going to get you plus and and uh, they they train that hound to fit that. And then also when you're out there actually competing, um, if you don't know the rules, you get taken advantage of pretty easily. And, uh, you know, just knowing the rules and, and quickly other people will, will acknowledge that you know the rules and it just keeps everything on the right path. Yeah, yeah. Well, for, sh for sure, there's... Um procedure jerry you know uh, there's been so many times uh, in my experience over three registries and and now two for you that people come to us with problems and we really are uh sympathetic to what they're saying but they haven't followed the procedure and uh to me that's the most frustrating thing to know that a fella maybe has a legitimate complaint or a, a legitimate uh uh, issue there, but he, he didn't take the time 
And I think that gets back to what you say about the to to learn the blue book, which is uh, the rules as provided by PKC. Now that comes to the member, uh, doesn't it, Jerry? And how often does he get the blue book? Uh, well, the new blue books are mailed out after the four-year rule changes are implemented okay. and and printed in the blue book, and uh, and. But aside from that, any member at any time can call the office and, and have a blue book sent to them. And obviously, you can read them online. Uh, you can save the blue book to your iPhone. I mean, there's right. in, in our current stage of technology, there's, you know, you can have a blue book in your hand out there in the woods. That's exactly right. So, and and uh, with smartphone technology and everything now, you know, I, I carried always carried the, the blue book right there on my iphone and linked it up and it was handy to have uh, especially when there's a question on the cast when you can you can pull the the rules out and actually be show arguing maybe not arguing your point but but uh arguing your case with the rules right in your hand that's pretty handy so um jerry i w- i've got a if we're done with uh pkc stuff i think i think we've uh, hit that hit that pretty hard. Uh, obviously, competition hunting, competition coon hunting has been very big in your life and had a big impact on your life. But I want to get your opinion on something because this is a question that came up in in a podcast some time back. But uh, what is your opinion of why walkers are so successful in the competition coon hunting game? Um, I think, in my opinion, I think it's just because of the of the speed. I, I'm, we've talked several times in this podcast about my my uh, nature of being uh, uh, wanting things done quickly and being in, impatient about things. And I think people by nature are impatient. And and you know, back in the back in the seventies and eighties when when people were trying to breed these dogs and having having issues with dogs being two or three years old before they matured and was ready for competing i think the the walkers for whatever reason and it's probably because they had a lot of tree dog bred into the to the running walkers um probably bridged that gap sooner than the other breeds in other words they'd have dogs trained you know, in those early days, well, and in, in certain strains, well before they were eight or nine months old, and, and of course, in current day, it's six months old, and um, and the people that were trying to hunt the other breeds weren't experiencing that quick of a response after they they made a cross, and and I think it's just out of necessity that that uh, people said, hey, I'm not going to wait around two years when I can wait one year, right. And, and so I think that was the original reason. Um, and then the other reason, I, th- I think it's mainly due to speed. Uh, you know, the, I've seen, again, there's, I, there's exceptional individuals in every breed. I've seen that speed but, firsthand. Sometimes they're so fast they beat the coon to the tree. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and I, I think, 
I think the, the, the Walker hound went through a bad stage, probably a five or six year, maybe stage where, um, you know, maybe 10 years ago when, when they were producing a lot of slick tree and type dogs. And I think that's come back around because people realize pretty quickly, or maybe not pretty quickly, <laughs> maybe eventually <laughs> they realize, uh, that if you're, you know, if you're going to win coon hunts, you've got to have eyes in them trees. Right. And, and I think the accuracy of the Walker hounds today uh, is a lot different than it was 12 years ago. So so they you say they've got to have eyes in those trees. So during that time period, is that when guys came up with the idea of slingshots and cat's eyes and, and stuff like that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I should have said coon eyes, but raccoon eyes, but... Uh, but yeah, there's there's some. Uh, I'm sure there's some hunters around the country, older hunters that have a slingshot and some some uh, nails with a wire on hanging up somewhere as a memorial to all that. Sounds like you're familiar. But, uh, I hope that Let, doesn't. Let's move on. I, I, hope, <laughs> I hope that doesn't go now, on anymore. Hey Jerry, Jerry, in case you don't recognize it in our listeners either, Chris is kind of. Uh, he's trying to evolve into a big game hunter. I'm a sniper. You know? And he's leaving the coonhound guys like you and me kind of in the dust here, and he's taking the, every opportunity to disparage us if he can. You know, I just wanted to give you a tip here of what's going on with Chris. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, mean, a wa- <laughs> I'm a wannabe on every level. I'm a failed, I'm a failed competition hunter, and I'm a wannabe big game uh, hunter. So I'm caught somewhere in the middle here. Well, the- yeah, well, you know, well, I, I've, yeah, go ahead, Jerry. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I, I was just going to say to kind of to kind of encourage Chris a little bit. I've always felt that that the dogs that couldn't make it as a coonhound, a lot of them do make good big big game hounds. That's because they can get they can they can uh, go out there and chase an animal, and they can watch it climb a tree, and they can sit there and look at it. and They don't have to be. You know, they don't have to be a really good tree dog. They can just, so, you know, if I make any more of those crosses that won't tree, I'll kind of send them on down to Chris. There you go. (laughs) Absolutely. You You know, I guess, I guess that segues into my next question and topic. We got to be winding down here pretty soon, but uh, I wanted to cover this part. It seems like uh, the question is often asked or maybe discussed, kicked around, whatever you want to call it what is the impact that competition coon hunting has had on, in your opinion, Jerry, what is it, what impact has it had on our hound sports as a whole? You know, a lot of times we see guys that, that want to uh, pigeonhole pleasure hunter versus competition hunter, uh, pleasure dog versus competition dog. In your opinion, what role has competition coon hunting played in our overall sport big picture worldwide hound sports well i in my opinion from the from the big picture most of the people that grew up in the era that i did when when hide prices were high and uh, and they just coon hunted for example when i started coon hunting uh it wouldn't be uncommon if if outside of coon season, I may be hunting my dog two or three times mm-hmm. in that whole year. 
and the whole focus was on game catching and and that's what I looked for in my dogs from the beginning to the last cross I made and so everything that I've done has come from the philosophy that I want to treat as many kids as I can in the shortest amount of time that you know if I'm out there coon hunting I, I want to treat as many kids as I can mm-hmm. and and I've that's that's my philosophy on a dog and it just so happens that fits the also fits the competition coonhound side of things you want to trade as many coons as you can in the shortest amount of time um now the 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 people that have grown up in the airs since then that that people don't hardly pleasure hunt anymore and don't hardly um hunt for fur anymore that the only focus that they've ever known is competition. Uh, I think it's it's both of those things have influenced the breedings of, of hounds a lot. And probably the, the two most significant things that's changed in hounds over the years is dogs that, that leave you barking, babbling dogs. Mm-hmm. Those not only would have no purpose in pleasure hunting or, or hide hunting, it would be, the problem would be resolved quickly because it would get on your nerves. Um, it definitely wouldn't have any, any advantage or purpose in big game hunting. Uh, you may not care one way or the other if they leave barking, but it sure doesn't help anything. Right. Um, but in, in a night hunt, it's, it's a, it's a competitive advantage. Um, and in the 80s, when I first started competition hunting, you know, all four dogs treed together 95% of the time. So you had to have a quick tree dog if you were going to compete. And so a lot of the breeding was going towards that one bark quick tree dog. Uh, but once the independent dogs came on the scene, that became became a lot less of a necessity so you know people start breeding more independence and that way it, it doesn't matter if your dog takes three minutes to set up a tree if he's quarter mile the other direction you're you're in no hurry um so aside from the fact that a lot of the independent dogs are man-made um it's also something that changes breeding so um but along and long and short of it, if you said, you know, since I started hunting until today, what's changed the most in the hounds due to competition hunting? I would say it's taken the, taken the trailing dogs almost completely out of the picture. A lot of the other things have kind of gone up and down, but the number one thing has, has been a change in the in the trailing characteristics and capabilities well i agree with that assessment there jerry and and uh you know i i I often dissect what we're doing with our competition hounds and i relate it to uh, my son showed showed pigs or swine in 4-h for several years and you know a show pig is definitely different than the pig that you're going to raise behind the barn for bacon. Uh, but 
the thing that you've got to keep in mind is that is a prototype for a, a certain situation there um, for that show ring. But it's also taken back to production hogs. All those 4-H judges are supposed to judge that show based on what's good for agriculture in the future. So they've bred for for hogs that will put on more weight faster. Uh, if the market's calling for a leaner hog, then they, they breed more muscle in. If they're looking for more body or cover, then they'll breed for more for more cover on the pigs. So, um, you know, relating that back to our coon hounds, the same has happened over the years with our competition hounds. And from what I've heard you say about, you know, there was a time period there where some of the, the track tracking abilities of the dogs was lacking you know it seems like we're going through this thing meticulously step by step and and eventually it's going to come around full circle where nobody is uh abandoning the complete hound they're just trying to figure out the recipe to get there do you have any thoughts on that i i think it is going to come full circle some because we've gotten to the point um if you go to a a higher level competition hunt where you're paying big big entry fees um it's a it's a really big job for a judge and a guide is from a from a, just a sheer walking standpoint and probably less of a challenge for the judge in a judging standpoint because when they cut those dogs loose they scatter like a covey of quail and you spend your time walking a mile here, then a mile there, then a mile there, and, and so forth till the cast is over. Right. And and again, some of those dogs were bred to be independent like that, and some of them were trained to be independent like that. Right. And I, I, my personal opinion is 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 that before too long, somebody's going to have the idea that hey, if I've if I've got a dog that'll that'll hunt with me or make 300 yard circles i can score several coons while we're walking to the while we in between walking to these dogs Mm -hmm. that that is within my hearing and what that's going to require if you if your dog's going to do that he's going to have to have a lot of nose to either tree layups around you because there's not always going to be hot coons available or to trail up coons. So in my opinion, that has a, a large potential of, of coming full circle when people start winning with that type of dog again. Well, I agree, Jerry, with what you're saying. And from my standpoint of being in that gray generation, I know that you know, it's not physically possible in some cases for a guy to hunt that kind of dog. Uh, he might make that one, one mile trip in there and back to his own dog, but to have to do that three or four times in the, in the course of a a two hour cast, it's just not going to work. And so he's going to stay home, you know, but, and I've talked to breeders that have said, you know, I, I don't know exactly if I want to try to go down this path to breed the type of dog that's winning in some of these bigger events today, 
because, you know, uh, I'm going to have to change up my breeding program because I do have that kind of dog that'll hunt that woods out, that will tree all those coons like you uh, spoke about. I think it was which one of your females you said would tree all the coons in the woods. You know, that would be the kiss. Kiss. Right. Well, that would be, I think, and and there may be a a natural progression to that. uh, And, and out of necessity for guys like me, because, you know, when I picked a pup, uh, to train out, I tried to get it from a bloodline that I thought would hunt a good hunting dog, but not an inline through the country, crazy type dog. And then of course I find out that many of these dogs, as you say, are made to be that way. You, and you certainly are not breeding, uh, for that type of dog. So that presents a whole new set of problems to the breeder that's looking to produce those kind of dogs naturally. But, uh, I agree with you. I think things will in time come full circle. Well, I'll tell you what, this has been a awesome conversation. When you get three guys that know each other so well, we can sit around and ramble on and ramble on. Uh, a lot of good information here was, was passed around. But uh, we're over two hours on this thing, Steve. So um, I think we probably ought to wrap this up. And I know Jerry's time's precious, but I'm sure we can rope him into coming back on here and talking again soon. Yeah, what I'd like for Jerry to do just real briefly is to give us a a rundown of what big events are coming up over the next uh, uh, coming couple of months, two or three months, Jerry. I know it's the busy time okay. of year coming up. Yeah, uh, I'm just so happens I'm getting ready to go back to uh, one of your home states. Uh, I'll be leaving Thursday morning to go to the Michigan Madness at All a right. new location this year in Hillsdale. And so uh, okay. that's actually, that Michigan Madness is going on now. The first three nights are at uh, reading. And uh, so... Of course, so by the time our listeners, yeah, by the time our listeners get this, that's going to be in the history books, Jerry, because of the time lag. But yep, yep. yeah, that Michigan madness has turned into a great hunt for PKC. I, I wish that was had been going on back in the day when I was up there. That's an awesome hunt. Yeah, and then Labor Day weekend, I'll be at Greensburg for uh, for six nights for the Labor Day Classic. That's always a good time, and I'm I get to sleep in my own bed, so that's even better. Uh, and then uh, the last week of September is the fall super stakes, and that's for uh, Monday through Saturday is for one, two, and three year olds, and then Saturday we have the baby stakes for the for the less than one year olds, and um, then we we move on to into the next big thing is. Uh, will be three nights of competition for the at the youth world championship uh at the end of october and um that's always fun we hunt about uh 100 youth and the entry fee is free and um and it's just a big time and we try to celebrate the youth and encourage them and uh bring them into the fold and and uh steve you were nice enough to come by and talk to them couple years ago and we really enjoyed that and uh and uh, i hope you did as well 
Oh, it was awesome, Jerry. I, I've always been proud uh, of the PKC youth program. And, uh, man, um, you guys are doing a great job with that. And that, it was a real honor for me to, to be able to, to come and, and to speak to the kids, for sure. I appreciate the invitation. Well, Jerry, have you got – And then uh, – Go ahead. Finish up. I, I was just going to – I was just going to say the week following then is the PKC World Championship, and that takes us into the end of October, and and then uh, I get a couple months off of traveling. So go ahead, Chris. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say we yeah, I'm glad you get through in the uh, World Championship. That's a that's a pretty notable event that we shouldn't have skipped there. So I'm glad I shut up and let you finish. Uh, Steve, you've got some concluding thoughts on our on our conversation today. Well, it's uh, it's been great for me. Jerry is busy, and I try not to to bug him too much. But he's been a great source of phone numbers and information for me as I pursue my writing uh, activities and all. And and but just like we say about everything in this sport, the friendships are the greatest assets and uh just great to have a friend like jerry and and to have you on today jerry it's really been great to spend the time with you and and uh just wish you the very best that you continue to lead uh you and and roger dale and all the staff at pkc are doing a great job and uh and i remember just real fondly back in the day when i first started hunting in PKC and my wife was never, you know, excited in any way about my hunting. Uh, she tolerated it. But when I started bringing money home, that changed the picture. In fact, I'd come home uh, from a hunt and there'd be a note on the downstairs bathroom, uh, mirror, uh, how much money did you win? So, so it kind of cha changed the picture there. So you guys are doing a good job, Jerry, and I hope to maybe, I don't know, I, I every year I say I'm going to get out to the world hunt again just to visit, and, and I don't know about this year, but it would be great if I could. Uh, but thanks for coming on. It's been a great visit with you. Jerry, you got any concluding thoughts? I've enjoyed it. Good. Yeah. Um. I just wanted to say I, I think you guys are doing a great job with these podcasts, getting information out to to all the coon hunters in a in an easy way that they can listen to uh, on their way to work and back or on the way to hunting back. And uh, I, I appreciate you including me. Hey, it's our pleasure, and I'll just wrap up with this before I hand it back over to Steve. You know, the the most important thing that we do is in this sport is build relationships and. And, Jerry, I just want to tell you publicly I've always appreciated your friendship, uh, the work we've done together on, on different issues, um, and with the Hoosier Tree Dog Alliance. I mean, your objective thinking and your your willingness to, to jump in and get things done. There were times when the Hoosier Tree Dog Alliance felt like another job for us, and, and we spent a lot of time working on that. But the main thing here, the thing I'll always remember Jerry Mall for is, is – not for the Salt Creek Coonhounds, but for the man that you are and, and uh, your work ethic and your friendship. So I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Chris. I feel the same about you guys. Good, good. Yep. Well, Steve, you've always got the final word. Wrap us up. Well, Chris, this has been a fun 
hour, two hours, <laughs> whatever. We've had a great time today. Jerry, there's an old, there's a bear hunter. I'd say old. He's really not as old as I am over in West Virginia that had passed the saying along to my dad and me, and it stuck with me, and we always use it to close out our podcast. There's a track here to be run, boys, and I'll tell you what. You follow your hound, and I'll follow mine.